community, we went and talked to a Hawaiian elder that was and still is very respected by people in the community as a decision making authority. And he said, go to this land. That's all my family's land. It was it's always been our land. We have all the documentation for 100 years going back 200 years. How is this all our land? You want to plant food there? You can plant food there. And so we got super excited. We're like, oh, that's great. You know, we're planting food for what we perceived as the kingdom, you know, mm -hmm. planting food for the people. Um, this land in particular is one of the rare Ahupuahas that is considered 100% crown land. Crown lands were designated for the people. They were for people to grow food. They were for people to live. The crown lands weren't just for a couple big land barons to, to own. It was for everybody to have as much as possible. So it was really the perfect piece of land for us to get going. And over the years, we've a lot of trial and error trying to figure out how to grow land on in the jungle, um, battling a lot of bugs, battling pests, battling pigs, battling people. <laughs> and, um, it's definitely been a work in progress, but you know, after all these years, we do have, you know, possibly a thousand fruit trees growing on what would be no man's land. Wow. And so that is land that goes back historically to this Hawaiian elders family. Mm -hmm. Does the government see it the same way? Definitely not. Um, uh, early on in the in my stay up there, um, I did have the DLNR called on me one time and they came up and told me I wasn't supposed to be there. And I told them, this isn't the state of Hawaii. You're out of your jurisdiction. This is the island Mokuokeave. And this has been here a lot longer than the state. Uh, they didn't really know what to say about that, you know. <laughs> Uh, they still kind of said, you know, I wasn't really welcome up there, but I told them I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. I would go talk to the family whose land it was. And I said, I would go do what they want me to do. What did they want you to do? Just leave? They wanted me to leave. I kind of had a camp fairly out in the open um, uh -huh. at the time. I was feeling rather bold, I guess. <laughs> I was really feeling like it was my land to steward. And so I... I gave myself a really great ocean view spot. <laughs> oh, okay, sweet. Hi, and welcome to the Sovereign States of Mind podcast, where we explore personal sovereignty and what it means to reclaim authority over our own lives. This comes in many different shapes and forms, including homesteading, off-grid living, Bitcoin, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, parenting, health, gratitude and mindfulness, and much more. My name is Jordan Nerbs, and I'm excited to have you along for the ride as I talk to different people about how we can gain more independence from these state and corporate entities. If you're interested in learning more about me and my life and how my family is becoming more autonomous and sovereign, you can find our YouTube channel. It's called A Family in Paradise. We document our off-grid living in Hawaii. There are no sponsors for this show. So if you find value in anything here, your tips and donations are appreciated. There are links in the episode notes. 
You can also stream this episode on the Fountain podcasting app, and that will also help bring exposure to the show as well as send me some Satoshis. Another great way to support the show is to head over to www.sovereignstatesofmind.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You have the option to join a premium subscription. You can support the show as well as gain access to a new Telegram group I am starting so we can bring the discussion to the community and really try to tackle the topics that you, the audience, want to hear. For extra premium subscriptions and content creators, there will also be a subscription option to get access to the two or three highlight clips I make every week of every episode, and you will have the full rights to use those clips as long as you link back to the podcast. They are great for montages, inspirational quotes, and general social content. So if you like what we're working on, I really invite you to check out SovereignStatesOfMind.com and join the community in some way, shape, or form. Without further ado, let's get started. Sovereign States of Mind. What is sovereignty? To me, sovereignty is a process of discovery, just kind of like knowing yourself. You know, it's the ancient philosophical quote know thyself that's directly related to sovereignty you know you kind of have to know yourself so that you can relate to the world around you Mm. and sovereignty at its root means that you can't be reigned over and i think that gets into the deeper philosophical implications of existence on earth and finding a place that we can exist and cohabitate with people around us with nobody ruling over anybody else. And I think that's what we're all looking for at a certain primal level. And so how did you arrive at the basic living situation you live at now? And how much detail would you like to share about it? Because I find it fascinating and that's why I've invited you here to talk. Well, I've been mostly living not just off grid um, for the past four or five years, but off property that's anybody's land uh, as well. So I have been semi-nomadic even in the small area that I live, but I've been setting up different base camps that I can live at, collect water, manage my life, and plant food for the future from. Do you mean literally camps? Yeah. So I use tarps, you know, generally is the biggest product of civilization that gets me through is plastic tarps and get some bamboo and use that to protect myself. And um, it wasn't just kind of random either. There was a lot of purpose to this too. Uh, Before this all happened, there was a lot of communication with elders in my community and with not just um, the people that I knew, but like reaching out amongst the greater community of what would be called the locals, the, the local Hawaiians, that their family is from this island for, for hundreds of years or more. Um, so I didn't just randomly just try to go somewhere and just make it my own and this is me and this is mine and I, I can't be reigned over and nobody has to, you know, <laughs> n- nobody could tell me what to do. It wasn't like that at all. Uh-huh. It, it was a lot of <laughs> middle ground communicating with people in the community, um, trying to figure out what worked for everybody, what 
desires the local community wanted to see happen and where we could all overlap in those goals. And to me, the need arose for more people to be planting food, um, whether it's whether whose land it is, is, is inconsequential as far as what the future holds and like who needs to be fed with it. Like mm. the community needs to have food access. That's food sovereignty. That's food security. Like, and we all need that. And it became pretty clear after spending a little bit of time here that we imported way too much food for there to even be the notion of sovereignty to there even be the notion of food security. Like the very fact that we're importing so much food from off the Island means we're not independent. You know, we're codependent and there's a big difference between being codependent where you're inherently, you know, dependent on others for survival and an interdependence where we can support each other's independence and survival. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that really clicked for me here when I was on an island. It became much more readily apparent that, oh, this small area used to completely be self-sufficient. And I never came across a place like that in all my travels where it felt like that. It never felt like, oh, everything here came from right here. You mean the the... The islands of Hawaii. The islands of Hawaii. The islands islands yeah. of Hawaii in particular, you know, where people didn't have to go very far. And yeah. the concept that, that really clicked for me, which became the most important thing in my mind, is the term ahupuaha. Uh, ahupuaha, to be roughly translated, there's two ways of translating it. The, the literal translation is pig altar. Um, the pig altars were put at the borders of different properties, more or less. The ahupuaha was the property of the community and the it was at its very root the actual translation would be watershed and ahupaha was a watershed and every watershed becomes self-sufficient and independent it doesn't rely on anything else for its resources it's completely self-sufficient with at least the resources it has it can't overproduce it it will underproduce if the resources are taken away if the water is taken away and it won't be self-sufficient anymore. But as long as the water is there, the resources uh, will come naturally. Water is life. Uh, and so the watershed to me is, is the root of sovereignty because the watershed is where all your resources develop from. And you can't take more than what the water can give. If you take more than what the water gives, then you, the resources start dwindling in other places. So thus we're looking at like the droughts of Southern California. They're taking water from all the other watersheds and now everybody's dwindling down there. They're overproducing in one area and it's actually affecting what the land can support. Um, they brought millions of people to live in the desert. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and now the repercussions are being seen from Colorado to Mexico. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the Rio Grande, Colorado, they don't, run like they used to it used to go into the you know all the way down to california gulf of california into mexico and that doesn't happen anymore because uh la needs water <laughs> so the core fundamentals of life civilization is often blinded to the watershed the water. it's just the most simplistic way of looking at like how do we create anything uh living on top of 
on top of this earth without a watershed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think if you're looking at a lot of the um, native populations that we knew about indigenous here and around the world, really in particular, we don't really talk about the watershed. We talk about the rivers a little bit, but when you get down and look at it, all the individual native populations were basically gathering around individual watersheds and that was their watershed to take care of. And it was the same thing here in Hawaii, the, the watersheds. Um, it's harder to see here in the drier areas, the, the specific watershed, but in other places where water is clearly coming down the mountain, the river is the center of the watershed. Everything is pooling towards that center valley. The high points of the valley are the borderlines where the ahupuahas, the pig altars, would be. Mm. You know, this is also symbolic of the interconnectedness of life. So the altars, I think, were um, held a special place because we were connected. The ahupuahas were connected. One, one up against each other were connected. And although they were completely self-sufficient and sovereign, they also needed each other sometimes. So they had a way of managing the resources in each ahupuaha, and that was done by the Kono Iki. And they're basically the warehouse manager and distribution manager, and also sometimes even like a council um, say, you know, the fishing wasn't very good in, in the in the Ahupuaha. Well, they put a moratorium on collecting fish. Now, they would also start to reach out amongst the other Kono Ikis and the other Ahupuahas to see what resources they might need. And so it was a way of balancing. It was sovereign at its root, but sometimes it would be in, in interdependent where somebody's out of this resource. Well, we can trade you. We can we can send off other resources. Um, and trade is actually a slip of the tongue because my understanding of it, trade is more of a, a colonial term that's been right. developed where the Ahapuaho system was gift orientated. You didn't think about getting more than you needed. You just did what you did because you lived there and you gave it all away and all your resources were giving to you. So it wasn't a trade economy like we like to think about as much it was just produce it give it away and all your resources came back to you. And that clash of, I guess, ideologies or philosophies of living is what led to so many conflicts with Western colonialism. It's how Cook died. Mm -hmm. It's how Captain Cook died. Yeah. Right. He, they, they were a culture used to just giving things away, taking things as they needed them. They took one of his boats mm -hmm. and then they got mad. Hey, you yep. stole that. Yeah. And then next thing you know, they clubbed him to death. Yeah. After giving them like boatloads of food, you know, they, yeah, they, they, they would have not survived. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> yeah. So that that to me is. um, Yeah, that that was the system that they had. It was give it if, if it was asked and they had plenty to give. And so it wasn't a problem, but as soon as they wanted something kind of in return, well, the, you know, the cook people didn't feel the same way about it. <laughs> so, yeah, well, uh, I don't think any white people coming would have felt the same way. Like the, yeah. we have a very serious definition of trade mm -hmm. and the, the idea is like, well, if I can get uh sex with that woman for a few rusty nails from the mm. boat, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the, I started reading this book called Hawaii Pono. Mm -hmm. I found it in the free box yesterday. And it's a, what I so far seems a pretty neutral history of Hawaii. 
and how sex used to be so free among the Hawaiians. And like you're saying, everything was just shared. Everything was community among the commoners, mm -hmm. not necessarily the chiefs and the royalty, but among common people, mm -hmm. everything was just shared freely. Yeah. And then within a few decades of the white people coming, even I think before the missionaries started coming, just white people, just business, mm -hmm. suddenly everything was about trade and value. Yeah. Even for the Hawaiians, it was slowly, the, the culture just boom. Yeah. So one of the ways that they did this was to break up the Ahupuaha. Um, a lot of the original plantations, a lot of the original railroad lines were through the middle of the Ahupuaha so that you had the, the Makai oh. and the Mauka. You had the ocean side and you had the, the up Mauka side. And you needed all the resources from up Mauka for all your fishing gear, like all the nets and the better wood, the better boats and everything was all higher elevation. So they, they needed that stuff. Can I ask a question real quick? Is that same of this? Is that part of the same Ahupaha, the mountain, the mountain and the shore? Yeah. It, that, that's like the slices they were yeah. divided into. Very, right? okay. Yeah. And so the, the, the Ahupaha would actually extend out into the water as well. So you knew your fishing grounds were here and you didn't expect other people. So all of that is based on the watershed location. Yes. Oh, I always thought it was based on like a bay or some feature of the coast. Yeah. If you look at Hamaku in particular, every little like stream and creek and waterfall basically is its own Ahupuaha as it flows up to the ocean. Fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And so then, so the people up in the mountains, you know, would need a lot of the resources down by the water because that's where most of the food was grown. Uh, the coconuts and the fish and, right. and the poi would do better in those lowland. So is that why railroads were built that way? To me, I, I haven't got a clear answer, but the, the very fact that they kind of divided these ahupuahas and then that way the people up in the mountains weren't able to connect to the people down by the water. And the people down by the water couldn't connect to the people up in the mountains because now it's privatized land. Now it's owned mm -hmm. by the sugarcane industry. Mm -hmm. Now it's owned by Dole. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they were able to divide, it was an easy way to conquer. So the the, the division of the Ahupuasa system was the dismantling of the sovereignty system of these islands. Very interesting. It's interesting to hear that exact perspective. Because there's plenty of, I guess, theories or ideas that go around of like what exactly it was. And mm. they always blame the white man and disease and bringing capitalism in or whatever it might be. But to hear it exactly like, boom, watersheds, the source of life, mm -hmm. how anything else can thrive. It starts there and just divide them. Boom. You yeah. divide, you divide the people, you divide the culture. Very interesting. So how does that circle back to to what you're doing here and your goals? You mentioned the desires of the communities you spend time with uh, and the commonality is growing food. So that plays back into the watershed, I imagine. Yeah. So um, talking to people and really listening to the elders, because it's it's not this isn't my land. I'm just a guest here. I'm not trying to do what I want to do. If I want to do what I want to do, I should maybe go somewhere else and do it. But I'm trying to do what the collective community wants to do. And based upon the best understanding of I have of that, people respect growing food here, especially because so much has been taken away. Um, the Hilo area used to be the breadbasket of the islands all the water coming down, all the area along the ocean was just a huge food forest, whether it was coconuts, 
and bananas, kalo, and then even fish ponds. Most of those areas along the water were traditional fish ponds where they would catch the fish and then use rocks to block it off and then they'd be farming fish on the mm. inside. So it was like very easy for them to, to create a lot of food. Um, when people from other areas came here and started getting land and started creating farms, whether it was um, sugar or rice became a big one once there was a lot of Chinese immigration, uh, the Hawaiians still kept stepping back. Um, they, from my reading of it and talking to people, they never really had um, a desire to make money because they had everything they had when white man arrived. Like what more could they give them other than like some stained glass windows? <laughs> you know, they had all their resources. They had everything that they needed. Their family did too. So that's why a lot of the immigration happened here because they couldn't get the locals to work because they there, there was no reward. There was nothing that they could be given that they needed. They had it all already. Mm -hmm. So over time as like immigration in, increased and like other people got land and in particular, uh, from Asia, people got land. The fields started being transformed from kalo fields, which is the traditional staple food, uh, to rice fields. And then the areas that were fish ponds started getting filled in and, and taken away. So a lot of these areas were taken from them. And so they lost the ability to take care of themselves and their family. And that's why when talking to people, it seemed like it was the most important desire the most important need was to get food back and food access for everybody and uh i took it and ran with it so what i did is after communicating with different people um they said i said where can i plant food i just want to plant food for people i don't really care whose land it is you know i just want to plant something that is the most public lands the most communal lands the, the land that's going to be for everybody in the future and not going to be taken by a somebody who perceives themselves as a landlord mm -hmm. or a property owner. Um, and so based upon all that information, um, multiple friends in our community, we went and talked to a Hawaiian elder that was and still is very respected by people in the community as a decision making authority. And he said, Go to this land. That's all my family's land. It was, it's always been our land. We have all the documentation for 100 years going back, 200 years. How is this all our land? You want to plant food there? You can plant food there. And so we got super excited. We're like, oh, that's great. You know, we're planting food for what we perceived as the kingdom, you know, mm -hmm. planting food for the people. Um, this land in particular is one of the rare ahupuahas that is considered 100% crown land. Crown lands were designated for the people. They were for people to grow food. They were for people to live. The crown lands weren't just for a couple big land barons to, to own. It was for everybody to have as much as possible. So it was really the perfect piece of land for us to get going. And... Over the years, we've a lot of trial and error trying to figure out how to grow land on in the jungle, um, battling a lot of bugs, battling pests, battling pigs, battling people. <laughs> and um, it's definitely been a work in progress. But, you know, after all these years, we do have 
you know, possibly a thousand fruit trees growing on what would be no man's land. Wow. And so that is land that goes back historically to this Hawaiian elders family. Mm -hmm. Does the government see it the same way? Definitely not. Um, uh, early on in the in my stay up there, um, I did have the DLNR called on me one time and they came up and told me I wasn't supposed to be there. And I told them, this isn't the state of Hawaii. You're out of your jurisdiction. This is the island Moku Okayave. And this has been here a lot longer than the state. Uh, they didn't really know what to say about that, you know. <laughs> Uh, they still kind of said, you know, I wasn't really welcome up there, but I told them I wasn't going to do what they wanted me to do. I would go talk to the family whose land it was. And I said, I would go do what they want me to do. What did they want you to do? Just leave? They wanted me to leave. I kind of had a camp fairly out in the open um, uh -huh. at the time. I was feeling rather bold, I guess. <laughs> I was really feeling like it was my land to steward. And so I... I gave myself a really great ocean view spot. <laughs> oh, okay, sweet. Well, yeah. And were the officers, I'm just curious, were they white? Were they They're Hawaiian. Hawaiian? They were Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. So that's probably why they didn't know what to say. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I, I'm not too familiar with any officers around here, but I always just get that feeling when they're coming for something like that. It's good to get the paycheck from the government, but otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, who are we, who are we rooting for? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, they were just doing their job because somebody called them up and, you know, they were used to just kind of running people off that would be, you know, camping on the land. But when I was Making able to math. Yeah. When I was able to present them a different story, mm. it was enough to change their tune. And they they never came back and harassed me. And I didn't actually move my camp mm. until about five days later. But I didn't do it because of them. I did it because. There was another family, a different family that I hadn't really talked to, and they had planted a bunch of the mango trees that were up there. And I I could see how I was being disrespectful, being under some fruit trees that were producing fruit that they wanted to harvest hmm. that their families planted. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the time, yes, I was still really new on the island and still figuring things out. And so I, I do feel like I was not disrespectful to, you know, the family that told me I could be there, but there was another family involved and they were the ones that called the DLNR on me. Uh, um, and so the they didn't trees. know what I was doing up there. Right, it was okay. all new to them. Um, a lot of the people in the community I had talked to and they did know I was up there and they did know I was planting coconuts and, you know, other fruit trees, but these people didn't. So I could see why they took offense to thinking I was just, you know. Do they know you better now? Um, I don't think I've ever really got to meet them. Oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I have kind of tried to reach out a little bit, but I also, you know, when the time's right, I feel that so, that'll still happen. So you're dedicating yourself to working with the land, growing fruit trees, growing food, and making sure it gets into the hands of people. And you, in this process, you're collaborating with what feels like an ancient culture in a lot of ways. And just the way that you speak to the officers, like just kind of say, no, uh, look what this is about. It's, it's the last episode we talked about homesteading and kind of like how around here, a lot of people just do what they want because if the government does come and say, Hey, you can't like, okay, who's going to stop me? Yeah. 
you and what army <laughs> as it goes, because it so happens that a lot of times they're underfunded for <laughs> such endeavors yeah. to kick people out of places like that or you know, the, those officers have somewhere else to be a few days later. And so they never came back to see if you left. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but OK, so what do, has that entailed for your experience of being here? Because you're a white guy like me and my experience is nothing like that. <laughs> well, um, I guess I kind of expected a lot more r racism coming out here. And maybe it's just where I'm at. Maybe it's some other variables going on. But I did not really experience much, if any, you know, for the first few years that I was out here. But that was also while you were doing what you were doing. But not everybody knows that. It's not like I'm making it a big public show and telling everybody. You know, That's what this is. Yeah. That's what this yeah. podcast is. <laughs> well, I needed a foundation first, you know, you know, otherwise it's just a bunch of talk. Of course. Now that it's been like going on a couple of years, it makes sense got a to, to start bringing it out. It makes sense to bring it out of the shadows. It makes sense to be able to point it out and be like, oh, look at those coconuts. They're taller than me. Uh, that to me now it starts to have value because of the time that's been put in. You know, I couldn't. I've been taking pictures about document this thing for years, but it doesn't really show very much until now. It seems like now there's actually something there. Now there's things growing. Now there's like something to show for it. And now you can go up there and you can look to see the contrast of like where they Monsanto bulldozed and put in, you know, GMO papayas and hmm. Nothing's growing because they toxified the land, and now you can look over where we're planting, and you're like, "Oh wow, there's mm. actually some life coming back here." I have found that kind of inspiring. Well, first off, hopefully now that you're coming out about it, people can feel inspired to do similar things in other parts of not just Hawaii, but maybe the world. Yeah, <laughs> right. When it comes to the very important things like reclaiming our sovereignty over our food supply, like that's not you can't trust anyone else to do that. You know, the community has to come together mm. to do that full stop. Mm. There's no, you can't trust anyone to come along yep. and take care of you when shit really hits the fan. Yep. So first there's that. But having moved here, a big reason we wanted to move here is because for me, it's really important to have a relationship with the land. And I don't want to live in a condominium or an apartment or something where I'm lucky to get like a little tiny outdoor garden. I want to have a relationship with this land I live on and I walk on every day and I want to plant the trees. And I've, I've heard that that is kind of a traditional part of Hawaiian culture, which is it's our, our responsibility to make the land beautiful and mm -hmm. to make it edible. And cause otherwise it's just lava. Yeah. Right. So there is something to it. Like, sure. Those, those trees out in the forest are beautiful. Uh, but at the same time we can add green, we can, we can surround those trees with, with, productivity with things that make humans feel good by looking at them with flowers that the bees like that other birds might come hang out on. So that's been my experience so far, but I'm, you know, I'm not just going on any part of the land out there and doing it. You know, the government says this is, this is the land I can stay on here and, <laughs> and I'm doing that, but under the scope of, you know, I have a family and I'm not, you know, I'm not as wild as I used to be. I appreciate that what I can do here under the bounds of the government telling me I can is still something that makes me feel like 
my life is worth living as opposed to just sitting on my computer all day mm. trying to generate some income. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. Um, an interesting term in the commoners of the land, um, they were called Maka Ainana. And people out here know the term Aina, meaning land. So all the Maka Ainana were of the land. And for us to say that we own the land is ridiculous because the land owns us. Everything that we get for nourishment comes from the land. Everything and if we don't take care of that <laughs> land, the land will leave us behind. So it's completely flipped. Once we realize that we can never own the land and the land will always own us and that we have to take care of the land in order to be fed, it completely flips the script. So the farmer, in a sense, is the only sovereign entity left out there because mm. they're the only ones that can provide the nourishment they need to survive. Everybody else is dependent on outside sources and able to food themselves, but the farmer can do it. The person growing the food out there is self-sufficient and is creating food security and food sovereignty. And without that, we lose our base of power and we're completely dependent on systems outside of ourselves. What percentage of your diet is farmed food, either from you or from the community? Well, it really varies. You know, I'm definitely not the the best either. Um, at times... At times, it's definitely over 50%, but it's hard wow. to get more than 50% from the land without just getting still stuff from off the island. Um, you know, also, I'm somebody that came out here with no resources and, and no money and no funds. And so, like, coming up with, like, any kind of resources to do anything in the garden is still costs. Still That's costs the thing. something. When you don't have dirt, mm -hmm. like until you've got some fertilizer compost going or the chickens, mm -hmm. like you got nothing but rocks here yeah. and it needs fertilizer. Yeah. I mean, even if you just stick a root in the rocks, you might get lucky there, mm -hmm. but like you still need some kind of nutrients to, to get things started in there. And mm -hmm. that's what I've, sometimes I notice I'm going to spend $25 on a bag of potting soil. And I'm like, is this even going to get me $25 worth of food? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like probably not. And that's kind of why I'm hesitant to like put too much into growing vegetables around the property. Well, for one, I don't really like a lot of vegetables, but also it just feels like it's not worth the harvest. I mean, for what we're buying in the store compared to the amount of soil and energy it'll take to grow it at home, I'm, I'm not sure. Fruit trees, 100%. You see yeah. how big those things get. Like that'll feed the whole family in a generation with yeah. enough mangoes. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely the fruit trees make a lot of sense. Like it's it's the best investment we could possibly make as far as I can tell with any kind of resource, any kind of crypto, any kind of monetary thing, like turning a seed into a tree and the amount of fruit that produces is-, is Fucking insane. Yeah, there's It's no super insane, yeah. Mm -hmm. And until you have a relationship with that process, we can't even fathom it. And a few hundred, 200, 300 years ago, a lot of humans would have had relationships with that process. Yeah. Instead, everything is this huge, giant disconnect between us and the things we need to survive. And we got these middlemen, state, corporate entities that are providing it for us. 
And there's no guarantee that that lasts forever. Yeah. That's just like <laughs> such a huge thing. To, and we want to hide from that fact. Mm-hmm. But there's no guarantee that'll be there forever. Yeah. The supermarket. Like. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the way it is out on these islands where there's not much for food storage. Everything goes on the shelves and is sold out like that. You know, especially when you get to the bigger cities and you take a look at the shelves on like uh, EBT day, you know, they get cleaned out at Walmart. You know, they get cleaned out at all the big stores in Oahu. There isn't anything left. You know, mm-hmm. you have to wait for the next shipment to come in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's weird, like especially when we first moved here, like there'd be nothing on the shelves. We're like, is this it? Has the <laughs> shipping stopped and the media won't tell us? <laughs> but it's just exactly that. It's yep. it's EBT day or whatever. And, yep. the, and this, even at Costco, yep. sometimes it's just like empty. <laughs> and it's funny because I'm, if I didn't have a family right now, I feel like if I were living here full time, I'd be trying to live a lot more like you. Uh, that's how I was before when I was fortunate enough to find myself somewhere as natural, raw beauty as this. Is like, well, I just want to live on as much raw fruits as I can because it feels good. Mm-hmm. You know, going to the beach, eating papayas, coconuts, smoking weed, like finding myself losing weight. Like mm-hmm. it's a good feeling. Yeah. It's a great feeling. And instead living this lifestyle of like, well, you know, I'm glad to know that if shit really hit the fan, we'd have enough food to like not die. Mm-hmm. It'd be boring. Yeah. Right. And like you talk to different there's different kinds of people around here you talk to, but what if the boat stopped? What if the boat stopped? Some people are like, well, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Oh, what if you can't? Uh, others are, you know, just scared that that's why we plant a food forest, right? Others are like, yeah, it just means you can't have ice cream anymore. Like, you're going to deal with it. We're going to figure it out. Yeah. And that's what we do. I've heard one person say that he thinks the pigs would go extinct pretty fast if the boat stopped. I don't know if they would go extinct because I'm pretty sure there's more pigs than people in Puna. Um, oh, I mean, in Hawaii in general, yeah, like, I, there's a lot of wild pigs. Mm, so I don't <laughs> know if it would go extinct, but, you know, people would have more value with them. Um, they go back to raising them when, like, you know, the rock walls and keeping them contained in fences and stuff oh, like yeah. that. But I don't, I don't see the pigs going extinct. One, you know, where's all the gasoline going to come from to go hunt the pigs? You know, where's all the bullets going to come from to go hunt the pigs? Unless we're going back to... You know, the ancient crossbows. And yeah, which we will, you know, but I don't think it's enough to like take out the population. Isn't right? isn't a lot of pig hunting done with crossbow anyway around here? There is a bunch. Yeah. With bow. Yeah. There's a lot of a lot of gun hunting with them, too, though. Uh, and I also read in this book that the common uh, maka ainana. Is that how you maka pronounce ainana. Maka ainana rarely ate meat. It was mostly mm-hmm. the chiefs and the royalty that had the pigs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the the fish was more common, but yeah, fish, the, um, right. but the pigs. There, the original variety of pig that was brought over was a, a lot smaller version. These are crossbreeds mm. between the ones that like Captain Cook brought, so they're oh. a lot larger and more destructive than what they had. So it's easy for them to keep them contained. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so so that's would, a different story these days now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would. Um, that was actually. My my reading pointed out that the 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 pigs were actually just another tool of war with the conquistadors, that they knew the pigs were going to destroy people's gardens. And everywhere they went, they released pigs Interesting. specifically to start doing that because they didn't have predators and they didn't know how to get rid of them. 
Yeah. And that was something that they did here to, to just destroy people's gardens was to just release them. Wow. Wow. So you have a business uh, selling mushrooms, selling, well, selling countless products from what I've gathered. And that all derives from your lifestyle of having various base camps and living yep. with the land. Yeah. So I've always uh, done a lot of foraging in life. I've done a lot of uh, mushroom foraging in particular in Oregon and California. I sold to grocery stores from Portland all the way down to the Bay Area, hotels, restaurants. Medicinal uh, mushrooms like yes. chaga and... Chaga, not oh. chaga in particular, um, but reishi, reishi. Uh, chanterelles, lobster, percini, black trumpets. Um, mm. Those were the main ones. But uh, the medicinal ones... Uh, are kind of near and dear to me. Um, and that's kind of what I put a lot of my focus on is making medicine from the wild medicinal mushrooms uh, in the reishi family and turkey tail family and turning those into either tea products or tinctures uh, for people to consume. So that's been uh, almost about 10 years now I've been doing that and even though I feel like I barely know anything out here as far as all the mushrooms and plants go, uh, people seem to ask me a lot <laughs> about what uh, I, this is or what that is and trying to identify it. Um, and so it's been a lot of fun for me to kind of find a certain niche for myself to be able to be a bridge to people from their lifestyle to all these beautiful medicinal wild plants and mushrooms growing right at our doorsteps yeah you have like a nursery too with some kind of rare trees and exotic plants right? uh, yeah i've been expanding some some seed stuff um not necessarily always from this island but i do have a penchant for beautiful trees rare trees um trying to get stuff that other people doesn't have and stuff that we could use so yeah i've been expanding with like dragon's blood and frankincense and biobob cool. and a few other things but yeah, the, the, the mushrooms and the medicines have been a big part of my life for a long time. Um, I think I just started doing it myself just because I was out there picking gourmet mushrooms and people wanted the edible ones. And I didn't really understand the market for the medicinal ones at that point yet. And so mm -hmm. I was just doing it for myself, having fun with it. And then I started sharing it with people and there was such great feedback that I just kept doing it. So it wasn't. I guess what got me into doing it was people's response, people's appreciation for it. And so now it's just been, um, especially out here lately, ever since uh, the lockdowns in 2020, I really started pushing the local medicinal mushrooms on people and offering it up just for free, just because I know how powerful the medicine is. Mm -hmm. So that's, I've been, exploring a lot of the, the island here and finding things off the beaten path and collecting mushrooms and making medicines from it and and doing all pretty good considering most of my life has been supported from plants and mushrooms um you know some some landscaping gigs here and there but mostly my life has been supported by the the plants and the mushrooms themselves do you ever feel that the there is a consciousness within these plants and mushrooms i guess maybe it could just be an expression of the earth itself but do you ever feel that that kind of ties back to the earth owning us and you're working in this harmonious way with them providing value to others with them that it's kind of there's like a force uh 
aiding aiding your efforts in that definitely not there, to get too you know yeah there, there <laughs> seems anyway. to be like there seems to be some kind of connectedness for sure and um i've always said you know like the the, the feeling we get from like eating food even that's like the consciousness of it living its last breaths through you you know experiencing what it is to have that like oh, human yeah. form for a little bit when we're like gorging on like fruit and we get that like fruit high <laughs> i think that's the consciousness <laughs> of the fruit itself just like we i'm like it's like the final stage you know they can only live grow and then how much more is there? But to experience it through the human consciousness, I think, is really powerful. And I think there is something to consuming the mushrooms and being a, an ambassador and a, and a tool for that. Mm -hmm. And so just seeing the response that I get from people is confirmation that the encouragement of the mushrooms is spot on. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's awesome. I, I feel like there is a consciousness with with these plants and working with the earth that kind of taps into us and can result in some beautiful things. They want their story told. Um, the Just because they don't talk in English doesn't mean they don't want their story told. Um, the medicines, they want to get out there. Uh, there's a lot of things that... Um, working with plants that people how to say it um i don't know i guess we're, we're always trying to do our own thing but there there's oftentimes an agenda behind it all like the in a spiritual sense like the plants have an agenda uh the animal spirits have an agenda um and we kind of think that sometimes we're doing our own thing, but we're really, we're just further along other consciousness. I remember hearing an example, hearing that concept for the first time, the example was given to me of tea and how tea has like controlled humanity more than any other plant, like historically speaking, mm -hmm. and how it was brought all around the world because uh, people wanted tea, people wanted their tea and then it mm -hmm. was processed in different ways and and you start to think like, who's really in charge here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way about cannabis. Do you ever read like, the book, The Botany of Desire? No. Okay. It's by Michael Pollan. Phenomenal oh, yeah? book. Oh, okay. Four chapters long. Each chapter is a different plant and it's like intertwinedness with humanity mm. and it's evolution and our evolution. So uh, it's got the apple, the orchid, the potato and cannabis. Oh, and cannabis. Are the four things in it. And um, like the conclusion at the end of it with like cannabis is like he got to the point where he delineated pretty well that it's not just our consciousness driving the evolution of things. It's like, look at the consciousness, look how beneficial it became for the apple and the cannabis plant to, to meet all this diversification of itself and to be expressed mm. in so many different ways. And like how it's moving humanity's consciousness along ever since the legalization of cannabis. Um, and cannabis has been a big part of my life. I worked on the first big pot farm in California way back in the day. 
Um, and I legal one, you mean? Yeah. The oh, first okay. legal cannabis farm operation. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ed Rosenthal. I've heard the name. But okay. Yeah. Ask Ed. He was like the cannabis guru for, for many years and oh, yeah. wrote all these books and everything. And he was at, he was speaking at this event and I went up to him and I didn't want to ask the question in public because I didn't think he would give me the answer I wanted. And I waited till like everybody else was gone and I kind of cornered him in the back before he could leave. And I say, mentioned that book and, and cannabis. And I said, so are we driving the evolution of cannabis or is cannabis driving the evolution of us? And he literally like looked around a little bit to make sure like nobody was there. And he goes, it's a symbiotic relationship. And he grabbed his stuff and he took off. <laughs> symbiotic. Yeah. That's a little more optimistic or right, optimistic or a little more yeah. positive spin on it. Or yeah. But still, you know, it's like, um, what came first, the chicken and the egg, they came at the same time. Mm. What came first, it's not an either or concept. It's the it's the fusion of both things together working at the same time. Well, it's like a plant wanting to move. So we eat it and we shit out the seeds somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Or some <laughs> or plants move on their own. But yeah, yeah. some plants move on. Their some own. plants can see where the light is. And over time, they'll they'll move. Like the, the hapu'u fern is called the walking fern because it'll sense where in the jungle canopy or forest floor it wants to be. And over, maybe it'll take 100 years, but it will start moving in that direction. And each offspring will go closer and closer to its ideal climate. This plant consciousness, which seems to have been a bit more obvious to, let's just say, a few hundred years ago here in Hawaii to the culture here or to mm -hmm. maybe any indigenous culture mm -hmm. is that plant consciousness is we are symbiotic with it because that's how we survive mm -hmm. and and that would get into uh the role of um what would be considered the shaman or the shaman mm -hmm. in societies and they were the ones directly consuming the the highest frequency plant consciousness and, yeah. and helping <laughs> to guide their society along with it and that's some some trippy shit too when you dig into, I mean, a lot of people have heard of like ayahuasca, but they don't know about La Dieta or what it, how ayahuasca came about when you ask these shamans, like, how did you think about just brewing that vine with that bark? Yep. Oh, the tobacco told us, yep. like when we were smoking too high on tobacco, <laughs> yep. so just try that. It's yeah, a, with, with a million different plants, how would they have figured that out? How would you ever out? know? On the yep. opposite side is that they grow in different like kind of environments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, then the Dieta, which is essentially for a month, you're drinking concentrated plants, whether you start with tobacco, I think, because that's the the teacher wisdom. Mm -hmm. But then all these different holy plants that aren't necessarily like psychoactive, but you, they steep it in water for however long. And then you're just drinking those plants. And then you do ayahuasca every few nights to kind of unzip <laughs> the file. <laughs> and then you're experiencing the consciousness of these plants. Mm. And that is like... The, I don't want to call it common practice, but it's it's traditional. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's plenty of people going there for tourist reasons to do that now. But it's like kind of crazy if you think about it. Like we have these tools right there to just absorb the uh, consciousness, absorb whatever that these that these things can only teach you when your brain is in a certain state, mm -hmm. a certain chemical state, which yep. requires something like ayahuasca or I think THC. Is another one that does that. It kind mm -hmm. of like if you ever take a microdose of mushrooms or LSD, 
uh, you might not even feel it other than maybe a a good Mm -hmm. mood, but you take a little bit of ganja and it unzips it for you. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that's what I, that's what I took. (laughs) And it doesn't have to be that intense, but that's what the really kind of connect you with that microdose. Yeah, for sure. This is kind of going a different direction than the specific sovereignty We're stuff. We're gone now, baby. But, uh, <laughs> but it, you can also look at the culture itself clearly in America and its use of alcohol and now its degradation into pharmaceutical usage is affecting consciousness at the micro and macro level. And if you look at different civilizations, different cultures, and the plants they use – it's very direct correlation to the type of energy the plant puts off and the direction that the culture moves in as a whole. So, you know, we do coffee and so we got to get up and go and then we like <laughs> at the end of the day, we can kick back and relax with alcohol. And, and that's been the driving force of a lot of our, our cultures. But if you look at other cultures and what's been the driving force of them, um, it's completely different and their goals and motivations in life are completely different. You don't ever find uh, cultures that are so obsessed with money that are also obsessed with plants. It doesn't really seem to be uh, compatible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they're they're just not, especially money the way we know it, which is, you know, in today's day and age, it's just corrupt. Mm-hmm. It's just fake it's just a joke. Yeah. I mean, you can have real money. You can have real trade, like providing value, receiving value for it. Like there, there can be integrity in that, but that's not how our society operates right no. now. <laughs> it's just about, you know, yeah. Uh, but one thing to say, I think it's really interesting how our society came to be that way with coffee and alcohol. Because it's not like these days, I think there's more conspiracy in it than how it evolved. I think pretty organically. You know, like, where does alcohol come from? Why did our white North European ancestors make so much of it? I don't think it necessarily was for the effects of it, even though it was cold and it would be warming and mm-hmm. things like this. But you don't have clean water. Yeah. And like, that's a way of making something to drink, to mm-hmm. stay hydrated. You make beer or ale. Yeah. Uh, fermenting food, like in honey, to keep it around. Then uh, that would make mead. Mm-hmm. And so like there were these and then suddenly I guess we just got addicted to that and it yeah. just kept going to where it's just a co- commonplace. I, I think it was actually the alcohol actually, again, in my research, goes back to herbs. Uh, the original purpose of a lot of the alcohol was to activate the potential of the herb. Like in a tincture. In a tincture. Oh. And so the alcoholic brews, um, there was a book I read. It was called Sacred and Herbal Healing Brews. Stephen J. Bruner, I think was his author. Really great book. Completely transformed my perspective on alcohol. He pointed out that like basically all these brews were medicines that we had to activate it and to store it for when we needed it. And it wasn't meant to keep drinking. It was meant to have one and then you're fine or maybe two, but it was more about the herbs he was pointing out that was in the alcohol than it was the alcohol itself. And then, yeah, at, Understandable. Some, at some point, yeah, the alcohol became the predominant thing. Um, Terrence McKenna likes to say, oh, they used to store, you know, the mushrooms in yeah. like an alcoholic <laughs> mead or honey. Well, at some point the rains weren't coming in, to Africa so much. And so they had to store these things longer and longer. 
and eventually they started becoming alcohol. And so then it became more about the alcohol because it was so much easier to access. And it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> it can be so much more fun than yeah. a few mushrooms. Uh, yeah. Especially in the beginning. And, and that was a driver of the patriarchal society as well, because now it's like, oh, this is my land. This is my woman. Well, because is- alcohol just creates so much ego. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, nothing, I guess, creates ego besides uh, us, <laughs> but like it fortifies it. Yeah. And it creates so much fear. Mm-hmm. My theory on that is alcohol as it's going through your body, your body's freaking out because it's poison. Yeah. And thus it activates this kind of fight or flight thing, mm-hmm. which uh, could be depression or could just be like, no, fuck you or whatever. <laughs> like, no, I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. Like <laughs> just some aspect of that and yeah. frustration. I mean, I experience that all the time after I have a beer or two. And the next day I'm like, man, I'm not myself and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not happy. Yeah. <laughs> and then coffee, coffee is the other one. Like coffee is the reason, like, I mean, coffee is the reason for the enlightenment, right? Like for the reason that we had made perhaps the American revolution mm-hmm. is because people started hanging out, drinking coffee and talking about ideas. Wait a minute. Why do we give the church so much power? Why is there a king? Like, yeah. you know, you get people <laughs> thinking and then excited and then mm-hmm. do that long enough and combine it with art and poetry. And soon you have, you know revolutions on your hands all all over the world. (laughs) But uh, then what happened to it subsequently leads into kind of the same thing with alcohol. Well, it's encouraged by our society now to drink uh, because it keeps you complacent, essentially. Mm -hmm. And coffee, like you have a coffee in the morning, it's hard to focus. Mm -hmm. Like, especially if you don't have something to focus on and you're like trying to figure it out, like (laughs) coffee throws me everywhere. And then not to mention the crash that comes after it, not to mention the acidity of it. And so there are these good properties of it that have helped our society much like alcohol tinctures with the herbs right like it's mm-hmm. it's but to to overdose to overdose on it to take too much of it to do it so consistently and frequently it creates this lifestyle of just like be a robot like just go to work do it like keeps it keeps the slaves um uh excited like yeah. <laughs> to, to go part to of the bread and day. circuses yeah, yeah it's part of the bread and circuses mm-hmm. and as i shifted into a more entrepreneurial life uh i was still hooked on coffee for you know i couldn't get away from it it was so hard to get away from it. and i would see what it was doing to me mm-hmm. like i i wasn't loving to my partners or like i couldn't focus as well as i liked i couldn't work as long during the day because i would have a crash at mm-hmm. the end and it took it was thanks to yerba mate that i finally could get away from it yeah. And then I eventually just shifted over to June kombucha completely. So like this is an experience for me to <laughs> to drink hot stuff again. Yeah. But coffee itself is caffeine is a really fun uh drug. Mm-hmm. Uh but at the same time, it kind of like puts blinders on to, you know, a more objective view of what's happening in your reality. Yeah. Yeah. Every substance is going to yeah, you know, kind of like um like playing a piano, you know, like you're hitting the same key all the time. It's hitting the same receptors. It's going to trigger other parts of your body to put more focus onto those things. So um, uh, I really like the eight circuit model of consciousness Mm -hmm. that kind of like puts a different substance on each part of the brain that we're utilizing. Who was that? uh, Timothy Leary? Timothy Leary and and Robert Anton Wilson really expanded on it a bit. Um, but yeah, so, uh, 
it's a it's a really great way of like viewing our evolution i feel um so like, you know the eight the eight, the eight circuits by yeah i i don't know all the names okay. of like the specific i'll put it in the references of the show because it is yeah. really fascinating yeah and the, how you can access them with the different with yeah. the different psychedelics yeah. And, yeah and and breathing and breath work too um and that's like the work of stan groff uh mm -hmm. as well and those those levels that he was dealing with in breath work are direct correlations of the first four terrestrial circuits of the eight circuit model. Right. And so the first four are like the bio survival circuit is number one. And that was self-preservation. That's like the most root basic need mm -hmm. of ourselves is just to survive is just to protect yourself. It doesn't involve expanding your territory or owning this or that, or creating anything. It's just pure survival. And you see that amongst people that are on, uh, opiates where mm. that's the part of their brain that's getting triggered is just pure survival um i i've seen it multiple times like people on opiates don't want to fight they curl up into a fetal position that's just self-preservation and that's just survival now as we evolved and we finally started surviving now the next circuit that's getting triggered is that through alcohol and that's the um um, circuit number two, but it's like uh, the territorial circuit. And now we're drinking alcohol. Now this is my land. This is my lady over there. This is all, this is, that's what Private happens with, with alcohol is you start to claim this and that. So you start to, it starts to be about money. It starts to be about sex, security, those kinds of things. And um, as that became part of like the tribal warfare uh, mentality is repeatedly hitting this button in our brain through the use of alcohol. Yeah. Um, yeah and number uh, until that's just how our neural pathways form. Yeah. Because it's, it's not like you do alcohol once in a while. Yeah. It's generally a, you do it pretty frequently, mm -hmm. even just because the next day it makes you feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and having no awareness of that fact too, for, what millennia mm -hmm. yeah and so the number three circuit is going to be uh stimulants and that could be tea that could be coca that could be any kind of upper and there's a um a very clear body types that start getting developed on these first three circuits which directly correlate to uh the ayurvedic system of body types so there's kapha vata and pita and those are the three body types of the three first three circuits the the kapha is the larger more heavy set mm. number two is the the vata and that's um the more muscular build no vata is more airy oh, and okay. lighter and P then pita, pita is more muscular pita, okay. which is the stimulants it's the yeah. fire which yeah I was just, you said that and I'm, like, I'm feeling that right now yeah <laughs> circuit number three yeah and so that gets <laughs> That is the circuit that we used when we needed to create anything that we want needed to pass down. So like in a sense, cave paintings mm. could be like the third circuit. We're creating a map of what we knew to pass down to the next generation. And and those the stimulants kind of inspire us to do it. It's yes. like that fire. Yeah. And, and feed into it. And it's interesting. That's like the 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 
the quintessential poindexter computer geek nerd is like that third circuit, you know, <laughs> drinking their coffee, all tall and skinny, you know, working on their computer, creating those maps. So it's really interesting how you can kind of see what people are consuming and then figure out what circuitry they're coming from and right. then figure out what values are important to them based upon those little variables. What's the fourth one? The fourth one is religion or sex. Sure. And if you look at religious institutions, they pretty much lay out the framework of what is appropriate sex wise in their culture. And if you look at like all the misconduct in like the Catholic church, religion and sex is in the same convoluted circuitry that they're dealing with. Mm. So there's not even specifically a, a drug as much as sex and religion, both being the drug. Mm. So right. if you start to see that, you see a correlation, you know, with how people perceive sex should be based upon their religious you know, inclinations. Mm. Um, and so then moving up the circuitry, it gets more into like our, our higher functions, I guess. Yeah. The first four now are were terrestrial that we needed as we developed here on earth. And they like Timothy Leary and Robert Unton Wilson like to say, Oh, now as we move into our, you know, cosmic, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood with other, you know, races and families, these are the new circuits that we're going to need to, uh, to evolve into right. the, to the next steps yeah and so uh, that's yeah. definitely kind of like the religious framework of a lot of new age folk yeah like we have to tap into our higher chakras mm -hmm. to start going 5d <laughs> yeah and all this yeah but there is merit to it There's especially there. when you approach it from timothy leary's mm -hmm. model yeah when you you can get to dive into each of those circuits and each one is is powerful in its own right he doesn't say oh you know, just evolve and only stay in, you know, the higher circuitry. No, you can't do that. You yeah. have to like incorporate all of them still, you know, if you need to utilize those other circuitries, but you need to do it in a good way. So like, you know, being in a daycare, or taking care of a bunch of pets or animals or something. Yeah. That might be a lower circuitry, but that's, it's actually a really good thing to practice as well Yeah, to be able to manage things and to be concerned about space and safety and security in a sense. So just because it's a higher circuitry doesn't mean that that's the only place to operate from. It's, you know, it's where we're going, but we need to incorporate everything holistically. And it's important too, because I know like for me, my ego gets in the way sometimes where it's like, I'm trying to build a life where I can just do what I want whenever I want. Like I want to be creative, right? I want to like smoke weed in the morning, do yoga and then be creative. Right? Yeah. Uh, but some days that's just not me. Yeah. Some days I need to just work either mm -hmm. out in the yard and sweat, you know, or like do stuff I don't want to do to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, but whereas not too long ago, I would have, been kind of disgusted that like, I know I just want to be creative all the time. That's I'm supposed to be a creative being like mm -hmm. a higher circuit. Right. Yeah. Uh, I realized, well, when I'm doing those other things, it also fulfills me in a different way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if I'm not feeling fulfilled, like I could be as creative as I want all week, but if I'm not doing X, Y, or Z also, I'm not feeling as fulfilled and it starts to feel kind of like I'm wasting my time mm -hmm. doing what I thought that I was telling myself <laughs> that I should be doing. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, when we were spanning up and down the circuits, it's not like you just do one or the other, but your relationship with each one, I think, is what counts. Yeah. Because you need to be aware, first off, and then you need to experience and train yourself in each one to an extent. And, you know, maybe those first four, we train ourselves to our civilization does it for us, even if we don't know we're doing it. Mm-hmm. But then uh, isn't the eighth, the very last circuit has to do with kind of like a samadhi, right? Like mm-hmm. just being able, just not being able to, but being aware that once you let it all go, everything is just one hologram. <laughs> like yep. everything is just the same vibrational wave. Yeah. Uh, and what does he say to access that? You need uh, over a thousand micrograms of LSD. Or I, ketamine. Uh, or ketamine, ketamine or DMT. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even think he puts mushrooms on the eighth one. No, it stops at the seventh. Yeah, I've gotten there on mushrooms though. Yeah, so I call bullshit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's actually how that was my waking up was that heroic dose of mushrooms where that had to happen. Oh, nice. This, yeah, the kaleidoscope <laughs> stuff and uh, yeah, complete dissolution of everything. I mean, the ego death, as they say it. But everything I read about that eighth circuit, I don't know what it's called, but that was exactly what what I had experienced. And I was surprised to not see mushrooms on the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um, yeah. I think even like <clears throat> mescaline is, is more like seven as well. And then mushrooms is considered more level six, I think where you're for most people at least. Um, and that's where you start to become a, a meta programmer of your own reality and your own brain and taking responsibility. Yeah. And that's one of the things that a lot of people on mushrooms and other psychedelics wake up to is how they are creators of their own reality, how the programs that they have running in their head create certain things. Reclaim the sovereignty over yourself. Mm-hmm. And how to, the best way to do that is reprogram your yeah. brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But realizing that is not the same as hearing it on a podcast. <laughs> very true <laughs> going through the experience teaching you that mm-hmm. which is why why we go do those ceremonies <laughs> yeah yeah that's um yeah so it's there's a lot of aspects to sovereignty and it's you know it's nice to put it out there and to discuss it so people can kind of see how to bring it all together and bring it all back and all the other disconnected components and the missing pieces and things seeming so complicated and overwhelming but then when you can kind of break it up a little bit and see what and simplify yeah and then it becomes like very real steps that each of us can take right i think uh simplification is a great first step especially if you don't know where to start i mean let's just let's just uh wrap around the watershed metaphor Mm -hmm. right it's like what is the watershed of your life and like literally look at it like your water. <laughs> what's your water? Where is it coming from? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what's your food? Where's the food coming from? And then it's not even about necessarily taking steps to changing it. It's just about becoming aware of it. Mm-hmm. And then as you integrate more, like you said, all these kind of scattered components of the big piece to the, the big puzzle, mm-hmm. the big the big vision, then, you know, it starts to become more clear how we can start implementing changes. But the first the first thing is to is to really just simplify and look at yourself. And then you start to feel the urgency of how important it is to, to ask yourself these questions. Yeah. No, going back to knowing thyself, you know, getting all the way back to knowing who we are. And so we can see where to operate from. That's a big part of it right there.
sovereign states of mind.